morning, everyone. As I gather all of my various papers so I remember what I'm supposed to announce to you. I'll start with my name. That could be really difficult from time to time. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. I'm Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee. And it is an absolute pleasure to be able to welcome you, whether you are with us in person or I'll make sure I'm looking at the camera when I do this on the live stream as well. We're thrilled you've chosen to worship with us this morning, and it is our prayer that this will be a rich time of celebrating Jesus Christ, of exalting him as we do so as God's people. If you're visiting with us for the first time this morning, we hope that, uh, first of all, we thank you for visiting, and we hope you got kind of the goodie bag that is out front that just gives you a little information about us, plus some uh, nice swag that we like to give out as well. And I would like to invite all of you, this is whether you're visiting or a regular attender or a member, if you're on the edge of the row, there is a friendship pad. Get that started, sign that in, pass that down to your friend, and that gives us an idea of who's here, helps us in terms of developing relationships with you. Several of our announcements are going to revolve around Easter and Holy Week, which begins April 10th with Palm Sunday. And one of the things that we want to do is incorporate our kids. So any of your kids and grandkids, Valerie Hunt is going to lead you all coming down during the opening hymn, Waving Palm Branches. And so we would encourage you, if you're interested in that, contact Valerie Hunt. And then the schedule for that week, we have a Monday Thursday service that will be at 7 o'clock, and the Lord's Supper will be included in that from noon to 12.45. So if you're working, you can come over during work, uh, is a good Friday service. And then Easter will begin with our brunch at 9 a.m. Now, here's where we're needed. Brent and Carol Johansson, and they are doing a tremendous job heading up the fellowship team and getting that started. They need volunteers I heard we don't have enough people signed up yet to bring me bacon. So we need more of that, and we also need all sorts of fruit and casseroles and orange juice and people to do the heavy lifting of coming on Saturday to help set up, and people who are willing to be true servants and stay afterwards and clean up. All of these things are on a sign-up sheet that's out uh, in the narthex. Brent and Carol will be out there after the service, and Brent's a pretty big guy. If you don't go volunteer, he may, and he's still fast. I've seen him run. He may chase you down. So in other words, we need to have as many volunteers as possible. And what a great opportunity for fellowship and celebration on Easter morning that we're looking forward to. Now, as we look ahead, we're still in need. And I heard people signed up even this morning for the nursery. Well done. Keep going. We want to continue to have that. And then in May, we're going to be going away from our prepackaged. We'll we finally finished the 400,000 things of the prepackaged communion things that we got, and we're ready to go back to regular communion. Barbara Pomeroli is heading up volunteers for that. So contact her if you are uh, interested in helping out with that. And then I'll mention also the app that we have called Realm Connect. If you are interested in either learning about that or having that activated, it's an app that gives you access to the church directory, all the leadership, uh, all the news, all the information. Call or come by the church and see Yvonne. She'll get you going installing that particular mobile app. So friends, those are some of the things that are going on in the life of the church. 
And now, as we listen to the prelude, let's prepare our hearts and settle our hearts as we come to Jesus this morning. As the deer pants for streams of water, so our soul pants after the living God. As God himself has called us to worship him this morning, may it be our prayer that we would pant all the more, desire and thirst all the more for the living God. No matter what kind of week you've had, no matter where you are at this point in life, whether kind of on the heights or in the valley, on the peak or the valley, joys or sorrows, doubts and fears, insecurities, no matter where you are, bring your whole selves before God who invites us into his very presence. Our call to worship this morning is from Psalm 98, verses 1 to 2. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. 
His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. Father, thank You that You have initiated and that You have called us into Your very presence to worship You. And Lord, we ask that You would be with us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Grant us Your presence that we may celebrate You and praise You and confess before You, acknowledge You as God the Lord, and there is no other. Thank You for this time where we can come as a corporate body to gather together to sing praises to You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our opening hymn of praise this morning. Holy, holy, holy. I hear the prelude based on Psalm 42, 
about panting after God, and we sing a hymn like that, exalting the utter uniqueness and holiness of God, and my heart is struck with how perverse my heart can be, that I don't desire above all things God the Lord, that I desire lesser things. My desires are always needing to be reordered, and I bet you I'm not alone. When we see the holiness of God and we're confronted with His glory, we're automatically confronted with our sinfulness. The psalmist prayed in Psalm 139, the psalmist here is King David, and tell me this isn't a daring prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. I invite you and encourage you Take a few moments personally and pray that daring prayer. Ask God to search you and to know your heart, to expose to you the ways that you desire other things more than God, the ways your desires are disordered, the ways you build your identity on anything other than Jesus. See if there be in you any grievous way and ask God to lead you in the way after la- everlasting. And after a few moments of engaging and doing business with God personally, we will pray together this corporate prayer of confession. So I'll invite us to join along and we will do that together. Let us confess before the Lord. Let us pray together in unison. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, Have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And how does God respond? The psalmist says he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Friends, if you are in Jesus Christ, united to him by faith, I declare that according to the word of God, you are forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God taken your sins and your guilt 
and removed them from you. How do we respond? We sing, how great is our God. Let's stand and sing together. As we go to the Lord now in a time of prayer, I want to add one prayer request to our list of prayers. Please be in prayer for Billy Benzer, Bill and Renee's son, who will be having surgery on Tuesday morning. I hope, Renee and Bill, I'm pronouncing this right, a sternotomy, I believe it's called. So it's heart surgery, it's serious. We need to be in prayer for Billy and for his family this coming Tuesday morning, the 29th. So... Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We will pray together in unison the Lord's Prayer, and then I will lead us in a pastoral prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, 
as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, you are in heaven. And we recognize that you are sovereign over the universe. And we do hallow your name. But we come before you with many things that are burdening us, that weigh us down. We are weighed down by events in the world. We continue to pray about this war in Ukraine. Lord, our heart's desire is that it would cease, it would come to an end, that there would be no more loss of life, no more violence. We ask, Father, for you to intervene, for you to save lives. And we pray, Father, for those who are afflicted with trials, even here, amongst our number. Lord, we pray for the Benzer family, and we lift up Billy to you, and we pray now, even now, that you go ahead of them, that you go ahead of Billy and ahead of the doctors and the nurses and the anesthesiologists and all who will be working on him, that this surgery would go smoothly, that his recovery would be even better than expected. You are our Father, who art in heaven, So we hallow you even before it occurs. We surrender to your will. We pray for all those. Many of our number have experienced loss, difficulty. Lord, we ask that you would be with them. Our need for daily bread, yes, is physical, but it's even more than that. We need spiritual and relational and emotional sustenance. We depend totally upon you. And we ask your forgiveness. That we constantly, our lives are in constant need for realignment with the truths of the gospel. We are constantly veering off course, so to speak. Sometimes doing even good things, but not keeping the first order things first order. Sin can be so deceitful. So, Lord, we ask that you give us wisdom, that you keep us on course with the gospel, both individually and as a church. Lord, we're so excited about things ahead. We're excited about new beginnings that you've called us to. But, Lord, my number one prayer above all things is that we glorify you, that we stay to the truth of the gospel, that our lives be grounded upon your word, that we continue to fly to Jesus Christ, continue to look to Him. We pray that You don't lead us into temptation, but You would deliver us from the evil one who would love to steer us off course. We need Your protection. We are vulnerable. And we ask, Father, that You would keep our mindset that Yours is the kingdom. We're not building our own kingdom We must decrease that Jesus alone would increase. So we confess and we acknowledge that yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's go to the Lord now in a time of prayer. Father, I realize just how dependent I am and we are that unless your spirit takes your word and applies it to our hearts, we are helpless and we are powerless. And so, Lord, our hearts lay bare before you and ask that you would feed us with the living water, that you speak to us through your word. Lord, may it build up to us a well of eternal life. Bear the fruit and accomplish the purpose for which you've intended it. In Jesus' name, amen. The text upon which our teaching is based this morning comes out of Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 12. We're continuing in our study. You know how 
you're visiting with us or haven't been with us for a while, let me tell you what we're doing. We're going through the book of Romans. Yes, that's a big... I want job security for a while, so I figure I'll tackle Romans and you have to keep me for eight years or something like that. Okay, but we're not doing it as one series. We're doing it as basically four mini-series. So we looked at Romans 1 through 4 last year, which is kind of a subset of the whole. Now we're looking at the section of Romans 5 through 8, in which Paul is basically presenting the gospel message. Remember why he's doing this. Paul is, see, we all, we're good Presbyterians, and we always want the deep theology. But you know at heart, and I'm not, there's deep, the, believe we're about to get into deep theology, which is why I have to try to make this practical at the outset. What Paul is at heart is he's a missionary. And what his desire to do He's been kind of in Antioch, along the Mediterranean. He wants to go westward. The end of the book of Romans says he wants to go as far as Spain, the ends of the earth. Is Spain still the ends of the earth? I'm not sure. But he wanted to go to the ends of the earth, advancing the gospel, taking the gospel to all nations. And so he was looking basically to change his home base, if you would, to rally support, prayer, financial, partnership in the gospel, ministry partnership, all these things. He wanted to take his home base to Rome. So if you would, this letter is his kind of his resume, his spiritual resume. He is setting out before the congregation of Rome. Here is an exposition of what I believe. Here's an exposition of the gospel, the good news, and he's drawing it out. And in Romans 5 to 8, he's basically alluding to and hearkening back to something that especially the Jewish Christians that were in the congregation of Rome would be very familiar with, and that is the story of the Exodus. He's presenting the gospel as a new Exodus, where they are set free from Egypt, set free from bondage. That's Romans chapters 5 and 6. You're set free from the new and greater Adam. You have a new identity in Christ. You're united to Christ. But what happens to the people of God of the Old Testament, Israel, You come out of that, and you immediately come where? Before Mount Sinai. And what happens at Mount Sinai? You receive the law. And that's where we are in Romans chapter 7. What do we do with this thorny issue of the law? We see it doesn't bring salvation. Do you just throw it out? Is it no good? It's God's fault. It's the problem. Of course, that's not the answer. Which is going to lead us in a few weeks after Easter to Romans chapter 8, where in the wilderness, rather than led by the law, we are now led by the Spirit. Just as the glory cloud and fire came down upon the tabernacle and led the people of God in the wilderness, the Holy Spirit, so the law is taken from something external and it's put it in the fulfillment of the new covenant, the law comes within you. Remember Jeremiah 31? I will write the law on their hearts. And Romans chapter 8 begins that Jesus did what the law could not do in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. And now the law written on our heart, internal rather than external, we are led not by a glory cloud and fire, but led by the Holy Spirit. Now that's Romans 5 to 8. That's kind of where we're going. We're in the wilderness, led by the Spirit. And we're like, what do we do with this thorny issue of the law? Do we ignore it? Do we try to live by it? 
maybe if I just exert more willpower, just more discipline, I'll go on that diet one more time. Maybe my noon counselor will finally help me. You know, well, if I just apply enough willpower and strength, does it work? Let's listen to the text. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 12. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Of course, Paul answers, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, and here's that phrase again, seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Okay, you're driving down the road. You're on I-20. You're heading to Atlanta. And you're going down there, and of course, you're obeying the law, right? Whatever the speed limit is there, 65, 70. I've noticed sometimes it goes up to 75. You're driving down the road, but you're kind of going a little faster than that. You know, you're not looking as it hits 80 and 85. And then all of a sudden, you and all the rest of the traffic look ahead, and you see that car. You know what I'm talking about. And what do you do? Ten and two. I slow down. I wave. Thank you, Mr. Officer. Here I am. It's like show horses. Here I go. Ten and two. I'm obeying. It's a sociological and maybe a spiritual heart experiment. What is your attitude toward the law. Is it ambivalent? Do you view it as a good thing all the time? Do you view it as it is an expression of God's heart, of his values, of what he likes and doesn't like, of his purpose, of his mission, of his agenda? Do you view the law as a good thing? We began to look at this last week, and we're continuing this morning as we look at verses 7 to 12, and we're going to look at Paul's teaching concerning the law, and we're going to see two things. Paul is looking at this text from two perspectives, and he's going to show us, first of all, the goodness of the law. He affirms it, but secondly, the impotence of the law. It's a good thing, but it can't bring us externally the transformation that we need. The goodness of the law, the impotence of the law. First of all, look with me at verse 7. Paul says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? He goes, by no means. And he ends the text, so I want you just to show the bracket of this text. Verse 12, so the law is holy, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The passage is bracketed by Paul's declaration that the law is not to blame. We all inherit that nature from Adam and Eve, and we all want to do the blame-shifting thing. God asks when we're caught, a little bit more than our hand in the cookie jar, so to speak, where are you? Who told you that you were naked and shouldn't have eaten the fruit? 
the woman that you gave me, she told me to do It's inherent in us, right? We're always blame shifting. You can't shift the blame to the law. Paul is in no uncertain terms making the claim and exonerating the law in his teaching of the gospel. So look at what's going on here. He's addressing this issue, not blaming the law, by exploring his own history. He's speaking of himself in this passage, and I must tell you, there is a whole lot of ink spilled exploring whether Paul is being autobiographical or whether he's speaking of Adam or perhaps Israel's history. I'm happening to make the choice of going with the commentators who say Paul is speaking autobiographically, that he's speaking of himself. But even in speaking of himself, his story, Paul's history, mirrors or reflects the history of Adam and Israel. So in other words, it kind of recapitulates. It parallels a lot of what went on with Adam and Israel. So and in terms of, again, and again, so much ink is spilled in terms of the question, is Paul a Christian or a non-Christian in this passage? Because here in verses 7 to 12, we're going to have Paul referring to things in one way, and then when we get to verses 13 to 25, we're going to look at another way. I happen to think what Paul is doing here is, in verses 7 to 12, he's talking about his non-Christian life. And in verses 13 to 25, he's talking about his Christian life. His post, so pre-conversion, post-conversion. And I'm fair, I'm, you know, I'm not that smart of a guy. So fairly simplistic, this is why I think this. I go along with Tim Keller, who's a whole lot smarter than I am, who says in verses 7 to 12, the verbs are in the past tense. If you look at all the verbs, they're in the past tense. The law produced in me. If I had known that all the things... And then in verses 14 to 25, he's describing his ongoing struggle with sin in which he refuses to surrender. A lot of those verses we'll cover in the next weeks ahead. So in verse 7, Paul again is using kind of this style, asking whether the law is sinful. He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Now why does he say that? Because earlier in verse 5, we covered this last week, he said, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That question leads to the question, of verse 7. Much like earlier, where in chapter 5 he says, where sin increase, grace increases all the more. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. It leads to the question of chapter 6 and verse 1. Okay, if where sin increase, increases, grace increases all the more, what does that mean? Shall we go? I know what I'll do. I'll go on sinning so that God's grace can increase. And of course, he says, by no means. So now what is he doing? Here he's using, again, his own history, his own confrontation with the law. In this case, and we'll get to this in a minute, the law, the Tenth Commandment, prohibiting coveting to explore this issue. And Paul presents his story as kind of an example or a paradigm. Here's where it mirrors a little bit of Adam for the whole human race. His story mirrors, reflects, or recapitulates that of Adam and Israel. Thomas Schreiner, a commentator on the book of Romans, says this, if desires to be sin are aroused by the law so that the law actually fosters and promotes sin, 
the goodness of the law is certainly called into question. Paul here is defending the goodness of the law even though it is intimately involved with the tyranny of sin. Here's his position. The law is good. The law is holy. The law is righteous. The law in in and of itself expresses God's heart. It's God saying, this is what I like. This is what I don't like. This is what I'm for. This is what I'm against. The issue, though, verse 10, tells us the issue point blank. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. In other words, the law is good. It's an expression of God's character. But by itself, external to us, not only can it not transform us, but it actually kills us. Now, let's try to apply this. First of all, we live in a culture that really doesn't acknowledge God's law, does it? But as C.S. Lewis said, God has created humanity with a sense of oughtness. We see that all the time. In fact, one of the things we have to be careful of is when we're watching TV, when we're on social media, when we're watching the news, when we're watching TV programs, we're being told what we ought to believe, what we ought to think, how we ought to act. We're being taught oughtness all the time. And even though it's not being acknowledged as God's law, you're being told a set of values. You're being told a set of values. Now, the law of God, here it is, is good. So how do we present this to people who don't acknowledge God's law? Well, you look at what people are trying to do by their oughtness. Here's what I ought to do. They are trying to save themselves. That is inherent to all of our natures. We are trying. This is our sinful nature. It is to build an identity on anything other than Jesus Christ. Take a look at the law. It's good. It promises life, but it can't fulfill. Why? Because of the law? No, because of our sin nature, our flesh that is committed to building an identity on anything other than Jesus Christ. And so the very law that promises life proves to be death to us. That's why the text says, while sin, seizing an opportunity. See, it's all sin. What does sin do? It says, ha ha, I see that. I'll, I'll work on your flesh here. I'll work on you. Seizing an opportunity, let me take this law, this commandment that's holy, righteous, and good in and of itself. This is how sin is deceitful. We tell ourselves things like, if I'm just more disciplined, just work harder. Let me ask you this question. How does just being more disciplined work for you in trying to break a bad habit? Have you found yourself successful at, okay, I know I struggle with anxiety. Here we go. Lord, take away my anxiety. Let me just do, let me just have a four-step plan on breaking my habit of anxiety. Let me just, just memorize enough verses. If I just, now are any of those things bad things? No. This is the deceit of it. Notice the text that says the deceit of sin. Law seizing the opportunity, seizing the deceit of sin. Our hearts are capable 
of taking very good things, taking good things, and using them for purposes to get us to avoid God. As simple as that. We are avoiding God. We are avoiding dependence on God. We are relying upon ourselves. And this is mirrored throughout history. This is parallel to the story of Israel. Leviticus chapter 18 says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. If we could keep the law, no problem. Go for it. Give it a shot. See how well you do. You know, and here's the deceit of sin. We keep trying, don't we? We do anything and everything to avoid the gospel of grace. It's like we're allergic to grace. Even in our love of the commandments, our love of good biblical principles, it's like we're allergic to grace. We're allergic to coming to the end of ourselves, becoming undone, and relying and depending on Jesus Christ. The law promises, inherent in the law, is the promise of life to those who keep it and death to those who break it. One commentator put it this way. He says, already in the Old Testament, a parallel emerges between Israel given the law and promised the land and Adam and Eve placed in the garden and given a commandment with a warning attached. To break this means death. The death in question involved banishment from the garden just as Israel's punishment ended in exile. But this was not the fault of the commandment given in the garden or of the law to Israel. It was the result of sin. Sin, in short, grabbed its opportunity on both occasions. So Paul is defending his teaching here. Here's the first point from the charge that the gospel contradicts the law. He is affirming the goodness of the law. But now look with me at the rest of verse 7. And here's the impotence of the law. He says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. That is so crucial to understand in this text. Sin is being personified here. And it's saying, grabbing its chance. It's saying, ha, ah, now I can do I see this law, let me just help you grab onto it. Produces in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. But I was once alive apart from the law, but now when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. What is Paul teaching here from his own story? Tim Keller puts it well. He says that first, what is the main purpose of the law? It is to show us the character of sin. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Now, he's talking about here much deeper than just the general information about sin. He's not saying, oh yeah, I know that there's something out there called sin. He's saying if it were not for the law, I would not have known personally, existentially, intimately about sin. Another PCA pastor by the name of Dick Kaufman puts it this way. He says, picture the law as a whip. In its role as a whip, it's defining sin for us. The whip is constantly going, showing you the real nature 
of sin. Which brings us to this example of coveting. Thomas Schreiner again says here that the prohibition against coveting, the Tenth Commandment, we're not to take as just the Tenth Commandment by itself, but it summarizes all the commandments. He writes, Paul concentrated on the prohibition against coveting because this is the only commandment that explicitly refers to the desires of one's heart rather than merely to outward actions. Coveting exists when we desire something more than God or contrary to God's will. That's why Paul elsewhere, Ephesians chapter 5, he calls covetousness an idolater. And in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he lists all these things, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Schreiner goes on to say, those whose lives are filled with coveting are guilty of the fundamental sin. By desiring what is forbidden, they thereby show that they treasure and delight in someone or something more than they delight in the one true God. God is not their greatest treasure or pleasure, and thus they can scarcely claim to be true worshipers of him. Those who covet have another God than the one true God who created the world. Thus, coveting should be understood as the fundamental sin. See, this is why the law against coveting defined sin for Paul. He says, and it's impotent to change my heart. The scriptures say, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. We ought to pant for God like that. God ought to be our chiefest treasure, our greatest delight. But let's be honest. Don't you like sometimes a good meal more? Or I know in a couple weeks, I can't wait to get on that golf course to our east. I'm going to the Masters. I'm so exciting. As the deer pants for streams of water, the law that says do not covet exposes you. It shows you what your heart truly loves. It exposes to you that we love approval. We love people being happy with us. We love being in control. We love power. We love everybody being happy with us. We love an experience. We love all sorts of things more than we love God. Folks, let's just be honest. This is why he uses the word deceit, because none of us, we are, again, if we're allergic to grace, it goes back, we're allergic to self-honesty. Every single one of us are great at saying, but I'm trying my best, but. And the law is there, and this is why the law is so good but impotent. This is why Paul can say, I was once alive apart from the law. In other words, huh, was he still a sinner? Yes. But when the commandment came, sin came alive. It aroused my passions. It exposed what I really love. And what was left, I died. Tim Keller says he's describing here a situation in which he found that the more he tried to avoid coveting, the more coveting and envy grew. See, look at the flow of this entire passage. Verse 5, he says, the law arouses our sinful passions. Now here in verses 8 and 9, he's saying, when the commandment came, 
sin came alive. It sprang to life. It it seized the opportunity. Dr. Keller asks, how does it do this? And he says, the basic answer is that there is a perversity about our hearts. Perversity is a desire to do something for no other reason than because it is forbidden. It is a joy in wrongdoing for its own sake. Paul's point, until the command against an evil thing comes to us, we may feel little urge to do it anyway. But when we hear the command, our native perversity that we all have, that's inherent to us, is stirred up and may take over. This is how the law shows us exactly what sin is. It breaks it down for us. St. Augustine in his confessions told the following story that illustrates this. He told the story sharing his own experience. He writes in his confessions, in a garden nearby to our vineyard, there was a pear tree. The pear tree was loaded for fruit with fruit that was desirable neither in appearance nor in taste. Look what he's picturing here. Here's a pear tree. Do I want to eat the fruit? Now nah, it doesn't taste real good. doesn't look real good. But he says, late one night, a group of very bad youngsters, and of course he was one of them, set out to shake down and rob this tree. We took great loads of fruit from it, not for our own eating, but rather to throw it to the pigs. We did this to do what pleased us, for no other reason than it was forbidden. For I stole a thing of which I had plenty of my own and of much better quality, nor did I wish to enjoy that thing which I desired to gain, but rather to enjoy the actual theft and the sin of theft. And then in his confessions, he confesses to God, in a perverse way all men imitate you who put themselves far from you. What therefore did I love in that theft of mine? In what manner did I perversely or viciously imitate my Lord? Did it please me to do with impunity things bearing a shadowy likeness of your omnipotence? Behold, how your servant flees from his Lord and follows after a shadow. Could a thing give pleasure which was done for no other reason but because it was unlawful? Friends, do you hear what Augustine is saying? He's saying that when we sin, the motive underneath the sin is to play God, to be a God unto ourselves, to be sovereign ourselves, to take charge of our lives and our world. That's why Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, Sin came alive, and I died. Dr. Keller says he finally realized that he was dead, that he was condemned. He was lost because of his complete failure and inability to keep the law of God. Remember I said that the law is good and holy. Why? Because it shows us God. Now what happens when we really see God? I refer to this all the time because it is just a paradigm for what we need. Isaiah chapter 6. When you see God as he is, you see sin for what it is. And if you see sin for what it, for what it truly is, broken down in its nature, you come to the end of yourself. You become undone. See, the law is good because it shows us God. And then when we see God, we become undone. And what happens then? 
we can fly to Jesus, who on the cross became undone in our place. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Now, notice the text says, who knew no sin. Jesus was never a sinner, but he was treated as one who was a sinner. He was legally treated, so he became undone in our place so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's why the only way to come to God is to see your moral failure, your spiritual failure, to come to the end of yourself. And we would rather do anything. This is our allergy to grace. You would rather do anything than come to the end of yourself. Just try one more plan, one more system, one more principle, one more commandment. I can make it work. Rather than come to the end of yourself, where you're hopeless and helpless and powerless and impotent and have nowhere to run but Jesus Christ. And the only thing that can change us is Jesus Christ. And thanks be to... Why do you think when you get to the end of Romans chapter 7, he's appeared before Mount Sinai, he's received the law, and what does he say? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Wretched man that I am, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There, my friends, is the heart of worship. That's keeping the main thing the main thing. And it is only when we do that that our hearts begin to pant more and more as the deer pants for streams of water. Oh, that our hearts would pant for grace. But the only route is to come to the end of yourselves. The only route is to see that you are impotent and powerless to love your wife, to love your children, to love your grandchildren. We all have this allergy to grace that God is breaking down. Wretched man that we be, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Father, May we truly be a church that is continually coming to the end of ourselves that we may run to Christ. I pray in my own life that as the deer pants for streams of water, my soul would pant after you, not as a principle in and of itself, but pant to you through and in and because of Jesus. We can't get enough of Jesus. Help us, Father, to fly to you always in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand our closing hymn, Be Thou My Vision. Oh, that Christ and Christ alone would be our vision.
now, friends, receive the Lord's benediction. May you receive the blessing and the favor of the Lord, that as you leave here, you may go out and be a blessing to others and to the world. May the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now, this week, and forevermore. Amen.